So, you're thinking of moving to Mars. Have you picked out a spot for your new home? What sort of real estate are you looking for? How about a mansion in the maze-like Noctis Labyrinthus, a hideaway in the Happy Face Crater? Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and this is part two of our episode looking at the plans to move humans to Mars. And you've just been listening to a video from Ted Ed, which posed the question of whether you, yes you, would actually move to Mars. Now in the previous episode, we looked at how we're going to get there. But once we get to Mars, the real challenge is just beginning. First things first, here are some of the things you'll need to bring to the Red Planet. A high tolerance for cold, loneliness, and radiation. A lifetime supply of breathable air and food. A multi-billion dollar spaceship. A desire to just get away from it all. And water. You're definitely going to need water. There are many challenges involved with building a new home on a planet that's at least 54.6 million kilometers away from Earth. And in this episode of Moonshot, we're going to break down some of these challenges to see whether it's all just a Martian pipe dream or whether living on Mars is actually possible. We can talk about propulsion, we can talk about the amazing shielding technologies, but until you're talking about dentistry, you're not taking it seriously. And that's coming up right after this break. Why do we need to build a city on Mars with a million people on it in your lifetime? Which I I think is kind of what you've said you'd love to do. Yeah, I think it's important to have um, a future that is inspiring and appealing. I mean, I I just think that there, there have to be reasons that you get up in the morning and you want to live. That's Elon Musk speaking with Chris Anderson at TED in 2017, outlining the reasons why it's important for people to pursue big dreams like moving to Mars. Like, why do you want to live? What, what's the point? What, what inspires you? What, what do you love about the future? And if, if we're not out there, if the future does not include being out there among the stars uh, and being a multi-planet species, I find that, in, that it's incredibly depressing if that's not the future that we're going to have. As we outlined in part one, Elon's goals are nothing but ambitious. His plan is to send a manned mission to the surface of Mars in 2024. Now, just think about that for a moment. There could, in just six years' time, be people walking around on the surface of Mars. And if Elon gets his way, within 50 years from that first mission, there could be around one million people living and working there. The ideal of having... So many people on Mars is uh, ambitious to say the least, although, you know, you don't really want to bet against Elon Musk. He does tend to, his timelines slip, but he actually usually gets there in terms of the vision. Um, what's more interesting for me is the idea of, can we just send one crew alone? And let's talk about what's required to do that. Once you send one crew to send a hundred doesn't feel that much more difficult, but the first is always the hardest. That's Alan Duffy, an astronomer and associate professor at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia, and lead scientist of the Royal Institution of Australia. Now, step one of moving to any new location is to scope out the real estate. And it's the same for moving to Mars, 
we need to know more about where we're going so that we know where we should actually live. And NASA has been doing its job sending rovers and orbiters to Mars for many years now, in an effort to learn more about the landscape, the atmosphere, and what's below the surface. What have we found out about Mars? We've sent rovers and things there, but what do we know about it? And what makes us semi-confident that humans could actually live there? It was once thought that Mars actually had alien civilization indeed. We thought we saw canals on the surface back in the Victorian era with the modern technologies of of telescopes and optics. Now, that's not the case. Uh, What we're actually seeing, though, with the rovers and the satellites in orbit are the features of waterways, of rivers, of, of old seas. We know it's a dry world, a dead world, we thought. What we're now discovering is actual water on the surface, highly salty, and and indeed entire lakes of salt water beneath the surface, we we think. So in other words, the presence of liquid water on Mars changes everything. Altitude convergence, the radar has locked on the ground. Yes. (laughs) In November 2018, NASA successfully landed its InSight Mars lander on the surface, with the goal of exploring the depths of the planet. Lander separation commanded. Altitude 600 metres. Gravity turn, altitude 400 meters. We're getting there. 300 meters. It was a tense day for everyone involved, because a successful mission would mean InSight would be the eighth spacecraft to ever land successfully on the surface. 20 meters. 17 meters. Standing by for touchdown. Touchdown confirmed. Now, although the InSight lander has only been on the surface for a number of weeks, it's already providing new data and imagery that we've never experienced before. And it's even collected a recording of some Martian wind. The wind was blowing against InSight's solar panels and created some audible vibrations. And we're sure to learn more from the data gathered over the coming years. But apart from the eight spacecraft that have landed on the surface... There's nothing on the planet for humans when we first get there, which means we're going to have to build all the infrastructure, somewhere to live, somewhere to grow food, something to harvest all of that water so that we can actually survive. And as Alan Duffy mentioned, knowing that there's water in the form of ice lakes and that there could be large reservoirs under the surface makes the idea of human habitation much more sustainable. We think there are these deep Uh, aquifers in Mars, we find one. There was no reason to suspect that was a special case. They could be everywhere. Tapping that that water, it's going to be challenging to say the least. But again, we could hope to find more accessible water reserves. And it comes back to the idea of even if all that there is 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 water ice, that's fine. That's just a question of, of heating it to access that water. So long as we just don't have to take the water with us. If you have to transport all of the water you need for human habitation, it's it's a, just a no-go. You can't possibly lift that much out of orbit. And when you think about all the things that humans need to survive, we have water and then we have food. We know that we can take an amount of food with us to Mars, but we don't have the option of continuously resupplying that food. I'm going to dip this potato in some crushed vicodin. And there's nobody who can stop me. It has been seven days since I ran out of ketchup. 
And just like in The Martian, where Matt Damon's character tried to grow potatoes, there has actually been some research about growing potatoes on Mars. NASA will be working with the International Potato Center to take the earthy tuber some 400 million kilometers away. This patch of the Atacama Desert in southern Peru even looks like it could be from another world. NASA scientist Julio Valdivia says, change the sky to orange and you are on Mars. The research achieves some positive early results, meaning there is potentially hope that we can use Martian soil to at least grow potatoes. We won't be growing crops easily, but all of that means that we can actually grow food. There's toxins in the soil that you would, you'd want to clear. There's possibly in the water as well, so you'd want to clear that. But we have the technology for that too. All of those things mean that it's not just a technological challenge, but is the will there, is the drive there to do this? Because the weather, I mean, the, the environmental conditions on Mars are very harsh compared to Earth, then it will be really hard to grow food there, to grow crops, for example. This is Briada Lirente. He's a researcher at Macquarie University in Australia and a future fellow in synthetic biology at Australia's CSIRO. One of the things he studies is how we might grow plants on Mars. You either have to recreate the environmental conditions of Earth on Mars, like try to mimic the conditions that you need to, for example, grow plants. And that will be like a greenhouse where you control the temperature, the light, uh, the atmosphere, the water, uh, the humidity, everything, right? But that will require a lot of uh, energy and resources. You will have to spend a lot of energy and resources to to keep all these conditions uh, as if they were on Earth, similar to Earth. There's one other alternative, which is, uh, I think it's much more uh, convenient, which is using synthetic biology to modify terrestrial organisms to, to make them more Martian, let's say. What Briado is talking about is actually similar to what already happens here on Earth. Often we modify plants and crops to make them more resilient to extreme weather or to provide a better yield. And it's this kind of technology which could be used to make sure the crops we grow on Mars will be able to thrive. You could modify, for example, photosynthesis to be more efficient in the conditions that of, on the, uh, with the Martian conditions. So, for example, light on Mars, uh, sunlight uh, is 50%, around half of the sunlight that we have here on Earth. Priado says that we could modify the photosynthesis process in plants to utilize more of the UV light range that is present in the Martian atmosphere, therefore enabling plants to grow. And he says this same approach could be applied to other areas of a plant's biology. You can have this kind of similar approach pretty much with everything, every biological aspect of, of a living organisms, like cold to- tolerance, if because uh, Mars is much colder than Earth, so you can either uh, maintain te- uh, spend energy in maintaining temperatures, or you can try to engineer the plants so they will be happy growing on colder temperatures. I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily. I'm a botanist. 
Mars will come to fear my botany powers. With the food that these plants produce, uh, take on different characteristics um, for the Martian environment. Would they start to look completely different, or you know, take on take on different properties that perhaps we don't expect just through having to modify them to fit that environment? I don't think you would expect to them to develop like like super different from what they are now. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the phenotype, like. A tom- uh, tomato plant will still be a tomato plant. Uh, it's, it's not going to change like into a different species, uh, but it, there could be things like. Currently, we think that the gravity on Mars, which is like a third of the gravity on Earth, it seems to experiments show that seems not to impact negatively impact the uh, the development and growth of plants, but that this have more testing. It could be that if you have less gravity, for example, the same plant would be maybe taller. The other issue with Mars as a planet is, of course, the atmosphere. Given that Mars' atmosphere is made up mostly of carbon dioxide, it's very unlikely that you'll be wanting to breathe in the air, which, depending on what type of person you are, might become a real issue. I'm someone that very much enjoys going outside. However, on Mars... Will we actually be able to get outside and enjoy living on the planet? Or will we always be confined to habitats that we've built for ourselves? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we'll never experience the great outdoors of Mars without a pressure suit, right? It's The atmospheric pressure is 6% of Earth's surface. This is um, equivalent to you sitting at, oh, say, 40, 50 kilometers high in the altitude, right? So you need a pressure suit. You have a non-breathable atmosphere, so... At the very least, you would always need an oxygen mask in any case. But So you're not exactly going to take a stroll for fun, but it's possible. We have the technology to make that, that so already. But just because you won't be going outside without some kind of spacesuit doesn't mean that Mars won't have its own unique experiences for you to enjoy. The sunsets are blue, not red, as on Earth. Um, you know, noonday sun is actually, is actually red on Mars. Why is that? Oh, it's particle size. The the particle size in the atmosphere of Mars is different to Earth. So light is scattered differently on Mars because of the particle size. So that's kind of cool. But would that be a bit disturbing after a while? Maybe. Maybe that would just increase the sense of homesickness. How long are we asking people to, to live there? Is it just for science mission of, say, 200 days, as NASA's proposing something of that order? Or is it short duration 30 days um, to minimize the radiation dosage or are we talking true long-term human um, duration and for those long duration missions there's a bunch of other potential problems that go with living on the surface of mars for long periods of time and we're going to have a look at a couple of those issues right after this break Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and before the break, we were looking at what life could be like when we're actually living on Mars. We know that we're going to have to find some way to convert water into something that we can drink. We need to find a good way of growing our own food on the Martian surface, and we're going to need to build somewhere to live. 
and a lot of the initial materials that we need will be supplied from Earth. But once we're there, what would living on Mars actually mean for humans, biologically speaking? You have to then think of medical issues occurring. You have to start to worry about human interactions under this high-pressure environment where essentially every day is a, a series of tasks that have to be done, have to be done perfectly, or else potentially injure or kill people. The boredom sets in and mistakes will happen and then you have terror. So again, the technological challenges are not, I think, as great as the human interaction, the human effort. We are the weaker bit of this equation. As we mentioned in part one, on these long-term missions, you won't have the option to just head back to Earth if something medical goes wrong, which means that the crew will need to be entirely self-sufficient. For exploration class missions right now, we have the requirement that one of our crew members isn't a physician. This is Dr. Jen Fogarty. She is the chief scientist at the NASA Human Research Program. Now, the other crew members, when you talk about redundancy, will have some type of medical training. They'll be considered at least one or two of them a crew medical officer because you always have to prepare for the inevitable dichotomy, which is the physician gets sick, right? (laughs) So somebody else is going to have to do the job too. But you also, this exploration medical capability is not only about the medical conditions that might occur, the probability in the system that treats them or detects and treats them, but the infrastructure from decision support and training. Now, given that Mars is at least a 20-minute time delay for communications from Earth, it's important that medical issues can be dealt with remotely, because Jen says that telemedicine won't be an effective option. And when we're talking about building a long-term home on another planet, we need to think about how we take existing services from Earth along with us on the journey. All of these things become really challenging. And until I hear of uh, a mission that has actually explored and, and solved and built ways of allowing dentistry on Mars, I don't believe anyone's actually really serious. I want to know what's going to happen with the root canal, right? And then I'll believe we're, we're serious about going to Mars because that's the kind of long-term health issues you have to worry about. It's, it's crazy, but that's actually the fine-grained analysis required. We can talk about propulsion, we can talk about the amazing shielding technologies, but until you're talking about dentistry, you're not taking it seriously. I think the dental one is a great example. It's very practical because um, most of us, by the time you're selected into the astronaut corps, which is you know mid-30s to 40s, we've even had people selected close to 50 you're probably going to have had some dental work done. (laughs) You're going to have a filling or two. You might have a crown or two. um, And you're still going to be eating and chewing and biting on pens. Um, You have bacteria in your mouth and all those things exist. And, you know, dental problems are are actually likely to occur. And you say, well, we're going to have, and they can be pretty debilitating and they can be very dangerous if they're let, you know, to, to just take their natural course. So, of course, you want to have a medical system that allows someone to get treatment and resolve a problem. But there's lots of, I think, potentially right answers to that. So we explore, okay, what does traditional dentistry do today? Like, how would I detect it even before pain? You know, is it, do you want to surveil with, you know, some type of scan of the mouth? And, you know, we look at different modalities in flight to implement this medical system. One of the ones we use in low earth orbit have a lot of experience with is ultrasound. Now, in case you may have missed the point that Jen was making, NASA is actually interested in how they might be able to prevent medical issues before they occur. 
so they don't end up becoming problematic on the journey or once we actually get to Mars. Doctors see people when you have symptoms. That's when you go to the doctor. You didn't know to go before, you know. And so our, our, we're looking at the whole span, you know, from very healthy, preclinical, subclinical, can we detect anything, to all the way, well, when symptoms happen and, and the bad the, the problem is present, like how did we get between those two? Could we have seen it earlier and predicted it? And could we have altered the course so the person stayed healthier or better? And if we can't alter it or we can't um, see it early enough, do we have the medical system in place to treat them to get them back to a good health status? So given some of the problems that we will have to deal with when we go to Mars, there are some people that have suggested that we try and actually change Mars to suit us. That is, we try and change the climate into something suitable for humans. This is a process called terraforming, and TV shows like Firefly and Star Trek feature planets that have been terraformed to make them more like Earth. But are these ideas just a ridiculous sci-fi fantasy? Or is it actually possible to build Earth 2.0 on Mars? Terraforming Mars is is lovely sci-fi. Great, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the expansive things. I, I love the ideas. So here's the challenge. Um, Mars is big. Like, it is freaking huge. Um, we can't even, we can't even clean up the Earth. And there's 7 billion of us here. I don't know how we're going to change another world that's, you know, what is it, 40% the size of earth so it's very large and there's no one there to do the work um so no we're not terraforming mars anytime soon so no it might be a wonderful thought to turn mars into this green oasis where humans can live and breathe freely but nasa have said it's impossible to achieve this monumental task with current technology so if we are going to mars we'll just have to learn to make a home on the planet with the atmosphere and resources available to us right now. But if you think about everywhere we could go in space, there is somewhere we could actually test out all of our processes, and it's much closer to home. December 2018 marks 46 years since we last set foot on the moon, and when you're looking at possibly sending huge masses of people to Mars, Alan Duffy says that perhaps we should actually try living on the moon first, so that we know we can actually go through the process before we try another planet. If we can't live on the moon sustainably, and I mean, you know, for several years, that we have no chance of Mars. So the moon has water. The moon has um, material, the, the regolith that can act, it's soil, if you like, that can be turned into concrete-like structures. So we actually can build on the moon, with the moon. We can do everything we can need to do for Mars, but we can do it at a travel time of a couple of days versus, you know, hundreds. So the idea of Mars first is crazy. It's so much harder. We can't make a mistake with the trip to Mars. We can make a mistake with the trip to the moon, and it's not unreasonable to get our astronauts back and save them. Uh, That travel time of a couple of days makes everything easier. So... If for no other reason than to perfect our technology and techniques, we should go to the moon first. There are so many ideas and concepts involved with living on Mars that we haven't been able to dive into in this show. Things like what will happen once humans start reproducing on Mars, and how low gravity might change the way that humans develop. 
So we'll likely come back to this topic at some point as we get more details on the missions. But there is no certainty that we will ever live in a Martian environment, despite the promises of people like Elon Musk. But regardless of that, it's still great to see that there are people out there trying to make it happen. Because whether it happens or not, humanity loves to dream. And it's great to think that one day, maybe, you could buy your own ticket to Mars. The, the value of building inspiration is, is very much underrated, no question. Um, but I want to be clear, I, like, I'm not trying to be anyone's saviour. Uh, that is not the... I, I'm just trying to think about the future and not be sad. Thanks to all our guests in this episode, and in fact, this season. This is the last episode of the show for season two. But don't worry, we'll be back in the new year with some new content. And don't be surprised if you see a few updates from us in the meantime. This episode of Moonshot was hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, with assistant production from Patrick Laverick. Also thanks to my co-host, Andrew Moon, Jasmine Mee Lee, Caroline Ho, and Mahalia Carter for their assistance throughout the season. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music along with many other tracks that you've heard throughout the series. All other music came from Epidemic Sound. And Andrew Millis designed our amazing cover artwork. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media. We're a podcast production company based in Melbourne, Australia. So reach out if you're interested in supporting Season 3 of the show or working with us on some future projects. Our email is moonshot at lawson.media. Make sure you subscribe to Moonshot so you can get all of our updates. And if you appreciated the work that went into this season, share it with at least one friend. You can also find us on social media. Just search for Moonshot Pod. We'll see you next season.